to another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here and joining us on the show literally needed a PhD in math to break down whether the Vikings did a good job in the NFL draft. Eric Eager, data scientist, pro football focus and the PFF forecast podcast. And uh, there's two questions that have to be asked right off the beginning. And I'll give you the choice of which one you want to answer first. A is what happened with all the quarterbacks and B is what does the math say about all of the Vikings trades? Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, I think the quarterback one's a good one. I know you and I have discussed, you know, the, the, you know, sort of position and, and how teams view it. You and I are both, you know, historians of the league. We, we look back at a time when we look back at a time when, you know, uh, Jake DeLome was making Super Bowls when, you know, Kurt Warner was a developmental prospect, Matt Hasselbeck, basically everybody that was the Packers backup quarterback, um, so on and so forth. And, you know, nowadays, like, I think teams are looking at the incentives and thinking, like, why would I want to develop a quarterback when I can have access to a Matt Ryan if I really want one? Or I can have access to a Baker Mayfield if I really want one? Or, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think when when playing this thing out, it was sort of one of those things where we all sort of said, oh, yeah, uh, Seattle will want a quarterback. Uh, oh, you know, the the Pittsburgh Steelers want a quarterback, and they got one, right? It wasn't the one we all thought he would they would take. Or, oh, you know, I'm trying to even think Tennessee will want a quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, no, these teams are sort of like, this is an all-in league. And, you know – basically you draft a quarterback when you need a starter and when you're bad and like none of the teams that were bad needed a starter. You look at the top of the draft, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's Trevor Lawrence with Jacksonville. It's Jared Goff with Detroit. It's uh, you know, uh, New York jets with Zach Wilson. It's the Houston Texans with Davis mills. It's uh, the giants with, with Daniel Jones. It's, you know, all these teams sort of presumably have their quarterback. And so there was really, like the like these teams are trying to supplement that quarterback with players in rounds one and two and not com- competition for a spot that only one man gets to play. I think that the other part of it is that draft analysts believed that these teams would take a big swing on the upside of Malik Willis or the quote high floor of Desmond Ritter. And the answer was neither because they watched them play football um, in great detail. And I think that the NFL has a much better sense for the outside world trying to watch tape and also even just looking at a lot of the numbers. But the numbers didn't suggest this was supposed to be good. It was really a, a lot of people's opinion on Malik Willis centrally focused on the dude can throw the ball a million yards and he runs really super fast. Um, but the details of what actually projects to success – might go many layers deeper for scouting than that. And if you are so far away on those things, then you go from being a Josh Allen prospect to a Seneca Wallace prospect, right? I mean, like all of a sudden, like I think that uh, we looked at what has happened recently with some guys who have hit, who have these supposed high ceilings and maybe ignored some that the league has not loved or has really blown up in their face. I mean, I still look at, you know, high end tools is what the NFL is going to want most for the quarterbacks that they draft next year that are supposed to be better. But 
I mean, before Josh Allen, there was like Christian Hackenberg. I mean, there was a lot of times where they drafted guys who had supposedly huge arms who did not turn out to be very good. And I think that they looked at specifically Malik Willis and just said, it's going to take a miracle for him to solve this, 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 and this. And I think also, you know, Kevin Cole of PFF has been on this very much too of like charting some of the things that correlate to success. And this draft class really looked bad with that. Um, uh, and, and that to me was the miscalculation is that those things that looked really bad on paper and looked like you should draft these guys in the third round at best. That's what the NFL ultimately sided with rather than saying, Hey, you should take this guy and maybe he turns into Josh Allen. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I just don't think that there was the, the opportunity cost, you know, when, when it was the, Buffalo Bills and the opportunity cost was getting rid of Tyrod Taylor. You know, with with a lot of these teams, you know, a you know you take take a look at the Minnesota Vikings, right? When everything fell to them at twelve, I was thinking on the show, I was like, oh, this could be a Malik Willis spot, right? I think a lot of us thought, you know, much like with Mac Jones last year, if that quarterback falls to the Vikings at their pick, they should pick him. And you know, when they traded out, I I said this to Chris Collinsworth, who was on the show with me. I said like. This is the first sign that the quarterbacks are not that liked because, you know, Quesi Adofa you know, it, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But like, I think he understands positional value, or at least, you know, like that, that was my at least initial thought process. You know, Cousins is on a two year deal. So you're, you're still like, the, again, it was one of the it was sort of the same thing the Falcons were like when they when they took Kyle Pitts over. Uh, let's say Justin Fields, you still got a quarterback for two more years. It cuts into the edge that a rookie quarterback deal can have. But then Detroit doesn't take him either when they trade up. They take they take, trade up for a wide receiver. Vikings get to 32. They don't even act, you know use that, take a flyer on him. Then they go for safety. Um, you know, again, it's just these teams are looking at almost everybody's locked into a quarterback. And so you know, when you're locked into a quarterback, the draft is for supporting that quarterback, not providing competition for him. And so, you know, that that ended up being thing. You know, Pittsburgh was the only team without really a quarterback. And, you know, with 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 uh, Trubisky in there, uh, you know, I think then, you know, I think um, Seattle likes Drew Locke, I guess, and, and Carolina likes Sam Darnold, I guess. So um, yeah, it was it was very strange. It was a very strange situation. And then ultimately, the only thing I'm you know I had limit size bets on the overs for both quarterbacks. I, I my only I my only thing I'm kicking myself about from a betting perspective was not betting over in the second round, right? Like Kevin Cole, my colleague, as you talk about, he posted a list of like all the second round quarterbacks have been taken during the post CBA, uh, and it's like one point two, right? And then we all thought like. Oh, all these teams were were sour on these quarterbacks in day one. They were going to start taking them immediately in day two, and like ultimately, the betting markets were like fifty picks off on like every one of them. So, you know that it was it was a collective failure to understand what the marketplace was going to look like on on behalf of the media and the bet. Even the betters, the people with skin in the game, like myself, you know, we we certainly missed. I I had Willis as first quarterback over Pickett and lost a decent amount of money over that. So. Um, that you know, it, it's it, it was a very strange thing, and I and I think you know ultimately when people say it's a weak class, we should maybe believe them. But it's been so long since teams have actually acted like there's been a weak class that you know we weren't ready for this. 
really since 2013 that there was no one worth taking. And the guy uh, that year's Kenny Pickett was EJ Manuel and the Buffalo Bills traded down and still took EJ Manuel. If you are trading down and taking a quarterback, it's not always the best sign. And um, yeah, I think that there was uh, an overestimation of the need and the tools and the desperation from teams to have to take one of these but I look at it as more of right the evaluation versus the circumstance. Like maybe circumstance played a role, but if you believe in anything with those guys, you're going to take them. Um, if you even slightly think that someone can be something, you'll take them before the third round. And Christian Hackenberg is the example that you have to keep going back to. But there's a bunch of them for second round draft picks where you go. That guy wasn't even good in college, but you know they thought he had upside. How about Jordan Love? Like Jordan Love is an example of this. He was talked about similarly to Malik Willis. This is the upside guy, the freak athlete that if he clicks, he could be a great quarterback. Um, maybe someday we'll find out. I don't know when, but he was still taken 25th overall, which that's where it says to me that everybody, all the teams, scouting departments and analytics departments all got together and they all looked at these guys with more information than we have from the outside world and said, they're just not good. They're just not good prospects. And that's where I think, you know, we, we have to ask with draft analysts and, and that's not your job. I know that, but, it, and, and I know Mike Renner was not high on, on these quarterbacks and um, you know, the PFF, oh, we, were still, we were still higher than what they were picked. I mean, right, even that's what I mean. like, well, we had Willis, I think, in the late 20s, early 30s, I think, by the time it was said and done. And, and even Pickett, like, we had Pickett overdrafted. Like, we had Pickett in the 30s or 40s. I can't remember the exact number. But, like, even people like us who had the board sort of stacked okay, I thought, like, we did not predict Willis going in round three. And, like, some of us, like, I was on, you know, Red, Gold, and Bold podcast with Petro and Shadia. I had the Lions go with Willis at two. I thought there was a 30% chance it could happen. Uh, I know George Shahuri, when we did the exercise on the PFF forecast, he took Willis too. Um, I mean, I took Sam, like uh, Chris Collinsworth took Sam Howell in the first round when I did his podcast. So, I mean, we all missed it. I, I, I think we have to be careful about, okay, what does this mean about the league in general? Because, you know, you always think about like, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, but like there are always like individual sporting events where things happen and we extrapolate too much from them. Um, you know, this is a very weird year. Um, but at the same time, there were things that were like first guesses, the people gassing up Desmond Ritter and saying, oh, you don't know how to look at quarterback play unless you believe Dennis De Desmond Ritter's great. And, you know, when people say that, you know, they're a little bit, um, you know, they're missing it a little bit. I'll just say from my perspective, when I looked, you know, and you can look at PFF.com, all these quarterbacks, when I wrote them up, their projections were similar to Kellen Mond's. And, you know, 6.7 yards per attempt, you know, 59, 60, 61% completion percentages, which are not good enough in the league right now. And, you know, that was the whole time. I said, look, like, you know, Zach Wilson had a 7.1, 7.2 yards per pass attempt projection for me. So you're taking a guy with a half a yard worse. And Zach Wilson, we all saw how, you know, even with a good projection, the guy could struggle. You know, Lawrence is the same thing. Uh, Fields is the same thing. Actually, you know, Fields is – from a yardage standpoint, it's fine last year. But then, like, Mac Jones ended up being the guy. It's a tough game, and I think people in this league right now are trying their best to sort of uh, 
take noise out of the equation. And and the easiest place to do it is at quarterback. And and the easiest place to do it is at quarterback by not uh you know, buying into a rookie with all that variance. Well, and there is another element to it of it that when you draft a quarterback in the first and even the second last year, we stretched this out to the third with some of the analysis of Kellen Mon. But if you draft a quarterback in the first, he doesn't have to be your guy. But if you take him and it's huge risk and your scouts don't believe in him and your analytics people don't believe in him and you just say, well, we're taking Malik Willis anyway, despite the red flags that are all over the place with him on the tape uh, as, as we find out. Now, I mean, that's I think the biggest thing is that people looked at the highlight reel and thought, well, that's what the league will believe in. But instead, maybe they factored well, if we draft him in the first round, it alienates whoever our quarterback is presently. So some teams would have a problem with that. If you draft Willis in the third, Ryan Tannehill's still going to play hard for you next year. He's not going to be too upset, right? But if you draft him in the first, then you're saying, well, that could have been someone to help me. And you just traded away our top wide receiver, and instead you picked a quarterback. That means you totally don't believe in me. Trade me. Get me out of here. Like There are all these things that are floating in the air with different teams and different circumstances. And if you're some of those bad teams at the top, the Giants, the Jets, the Texans, the, the Lions, they need football players. They're rebuilding their entire rosters, and maybe they didn't believe that it was worth taking a prospect that has, say, only a 10% chance. Uh, I think that people like you and I and the betters, we are more of trusting of what the mock drafts say in mass and the scout people and the, uh, you know, analysts and the tape watchers and all that sort of stuff. And traditionally, if you looked at where quarterbacks were mocked, it was usually fairly accurate, but it was also much easier to discern when you had elite quarterback prospects that were really good and you knew they were going to be at the top. And then a, a very clear second wave where this year it was much more muddy. Um, but, you know, to be well, off by five rounds in some cases with some of these quarterbacks, it really requires an explanation from people. And, and we'll talk to more throughout the week, but like from people who analyze this to say, okay, if you have someone as a first round prospect that misses by five rounds, there is a gargantuan gap between what you think and what everyone in the league thinks. And that is, we see that a lot with guards. We don't usually see that a lot with quarterbacks. Yeah. And, and the, another big thing to think about, you know, is maybe when we look at these things, it's hard to, it's hard not to look at the results of previous classes and compare them to expectations for current classes. So what I mean by that is, you know, we look at Justin Fields and he struggles a lot as a rookie. We look at Zach Wilson. He struggles a lot as a rookie. I even think back, like I watched the 94 draft and like the two quarterbacks taken at the top were Heath Shuler and Trent Dilfer. Surely Carson Strong and, and Malik Willis and those guys are better than Trent Dilfer and Heath Shuler. Problem is the expectations for both of those guys are much higher, right? You, you, essentially, it, it's sort of like looking at, you know, we, we I, I know you we play blackjack and stuff like that. It's like, you look at a, a a hand that is, you know, let's say an 11 against a dealer showing a six, and you look at all the, the hands there that lost, right, even though they were favorites to win. And you say, well, you know, that hand lost, so it's just the same as this not one hand I have now, which is a six, a 16, right? And so, like, 
but that's not how it works, right? Like you have to look and say, and that's why evaluation matters because and analytics matter. That's why when I say the projected passing yards per attempt for Malik Willis was 6.7 and Desmond Ritter's was 6.7 and all, you know, I have to compare that to Zach Wilson because Zach Wilson had the goods early on. He might average five yards an attempt for his career, but that doesn't mean that going in, he wasn't a good you know, hand in the, in the blackjack uh, game. Right. Like, and so that that's really hard to do because good prospects bust all the time. That doesn't mean you should take bad prospects because they're the same. Folks, while there is plenty of classic football gear to check out at Soda Stick, the hockey playoffs are beginning, and you can jump on board with Soda Stick's amazing hockey designs. Dollar Bill, Krill, Moose, Madano, the old North Stars logo, they've got everything for you for a deep playoff run. Hats, shirts, hoodies, and prints for your fan cave. Go to SodaStick.com. That is S-O-T-A-S-T-I-C-K. Dot com. Use the code Purple Insider for fifteen percent off. Um, okay, before we move on to the Vikings math, what uh, are the odds that one of these players that's not Kenny Pickett, first round draft pick? Um, what are the odds that somebody proves everybody in the league wrong, and then the draft analysis world gets to come back and say, "Aha! I told you that." This guy was my favorite guy. I mean, hey, it, would we be shocked? And this is tongue in cheek. If Carson Wentz alienated another team and Sam Howell emerged as their star, um, pretty unlikely. But what are the what are the the actual chances that somebody bucks the trend uh, and proves that the whole league was making a mistake by underrating the draft class? Uh I think there's a good chance. So, so here's what I'll say, and I and I made a I made a joke. Uh, about this um in in uh, on twitter today i said look there's going to be undrafted rookies that play really well um the chances that they're the specific undrafted rookies that you want to play well uh is not that hot i think there's going to be at least one quarterback in this class that does okay now the million dollar question is which which one of these quarterbacks is it Obviously, the way in which they're drafted, the most likely is Kenny Pickett. The second likely is Desmond Ritter. The third likely is Malik Willis. And as it goes down, and, and you know Carson Strong being undrafted is the least likely. But we're talking about rolls of the dice here. So that that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I, I think that they, uh, you know, I think that they're, you know, in a position here where, um, you know, at least one will do okay. But that's that's still not that great, right? Well, Kenny Pickett is, uh, to me, an, an entire side conversation. Kenny Pickett went exactly where he was supposed to go in a lot of people's minds, which was in the middle to the late first round from the evaluation. It was just everybody else was not in his ballpark, which also, I guess, draws the question of, well, why did you know Kenny Pickett get much more attention than these other quarterbacks. And I mean, one reason is that he played a heck of a lot better in his last year in college. He is the only one who actually played good in his last year mm -hmm. in college, which I think probably mattered with the focus on the tape. But uh, let, let's go to the Vikings though. Part of this, um, what a sport did he win the trade or not was mm -hmm. over the draft. And I asked Kwesi Adafo Mensa that directly of like, you got your own chart 
chart or I mean, whose chart do you like? Whose chart should we use? Because the PFF chart liked the first trade. The Jimmy Johnson chart hated the first trade. The Neither chart knows that it was your division opponent who you gave a really good wide receiver to, which I think is, I mean, talk about playing with gas uh, or whatever. What's the saying? Playing with fire? Playing with fire, yeah. Playing, playing with, well, juggling gas, something in there. But anyway, potentially uh, walking right into a classic Vikings LOL of the guy going for 200 yards a game against you. I mean, it just, you know, if you're a longtime Vikings follower, you can write that one before it happens. But was it a good idea the way they handled all of their trades and how should we figure that out? I, I think the first trade, you know, the issue that you have, the issue that you have to, you know, sort of evaluate is, I, I think that the issue you have to evaluate is, you know, what is the opportunity cost of of, of doing this, right? And you know, the Chiefs, the, the 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 you know, the Chiefs, you know, when they went up and got McDuffie, that was a player that was five positions behind where the betting markets were. So you can kind of squint and say, oh. You know, this is a player who is worth more maybe to me than he would have been to other teams. So maybe we can do it. And again, like this one, I had a bunch of people in the league who were like, oh, look, Quasi got fleeced in this trade. And, you know, then I look at our model and it looks like, you know, in the, in the first trade, which was uh, 34, 32, 66 for 12 and 46, the, Vi- the Vikings win this trade. 57% of the time they gain. And th- again, this is the game of inches. They gain about one sixth of a win above replacement during the course uh, of the rookie deals here. Now I think there's a real edge in ha- in there's a real edge when the market is based upon something that isn't true and you get them to believe that they're making a good trade with you while you're making actually making a good trade. Now, Far be it from me. We've done extensive research at PFF. I trust Timo Riske. I trust Brad Spielberger. I trust everybody in my group. I believe we're right. And so I think that the Vikings got a positive EV trade here. Um, and, and I believe that it's sharp to make positive EV trades with your division because ultimately if you continue to do that, you're going to eventually over time have, have them by the stones, if you will. The issue, obviously, is, you know, the Vikings aren't playing the long game. They signed Kirk Cousins to a two-year deal. Like, it's not it's not consistent with who they are or who they want to be, but, it, but in a vacuum, this trade was good for the Vikings. Now, from Detroit's perspective, this is where I think you can get uh, on their side a little bit. Let's say that you had, so again, like I said, 0.15 wins above replacement. Minnesota wins a trade 57% of the time. Let's assume Detroit believes – He's like the eighth best player in the draft, right? And again, he's not because that's not what the market said. If they believe he's the eighth best player in the draft, then Detroit gets a .01. It's basically break even, right? So that's how you look at it from Detroit's perspective and say, look, we're getting a steal here. We're going to give up some picks to do it. And it's already positive by the Jimmy Johnson chart. Now it's positive by the PFM chart. Right. Um, So here's my struggle with that. With the whole with the whole thing is, I mean, one is great players win championships. Like it's not okay, guys that drive your we success. Know. It's great, right? Oh wow. Um, so uh anyway, from what I've heard, 
<laughs> great players sure. are the ones that drive championships and your odds of getting a great player at number 12 are so much different than a great player at number 32. And so the, when I was listening to uh, Renner and Gale on the tailgate podcast, break this down, that was the way that they looked at it. They, they said, look, um, yes, the chart that we have says the Vikings got a slight edge here. However, Detroit gets to have Jamison Williams on their football team. And that player just has a better chance at a much bigger position than Lewis seen, uh, over the long haul and uh, the 66 overall pick, what's the chances that player becomes great, uh, quite a, quite a bit lower. So I think that that's another way to look at this is could you, could you get another, if, okay, you don't get a good player there you, uh, because you're Detroit and you've given up some draft capital, but you can replace the good player that might be missing that you would have drafted in free agency. What you can't replace is a dude who, if he ran the 40, probably would have gone four three and is one of the quickest and most explosive players at a very much premium position to eventually pair with their next quarterback and Amon Ross St. Brown. Like, like the whole context of it, when, when it's close, and I think you have to take that very much into account. It's not like, oh, well, they just absolutely murdered this team in this trade. Like when the Saints gave up a first round pick to trade up to get Marcus Davenport. The minute they did that, you're like, you're insane. That makes no sense at all. With this one, I think it's very much nuanced. And in a lot of ways, just like all depends on what Jamison Williams becomes even more to me than it matters what Lewis scene becomes. Yeah, and and I think one one other thing is important to consider is is even just the pro- and again you're taking multiple swings at this, so you know take that with a grain of salt. You're not just getting 32; you're also getting 34. But let but let's consider for a second what the because ch- the Minnesota Vikings don't even need like I'm not even thinking about superstar at this one. Let's just think about competent players, right? And and a sure sign of competence. I tweeted this out just a little bit ago because all the fifth-year options are being decided upon, um, including Garrett Bradbury's. Um, the 12th pick of the nine years that we have of post-CBA play, the, the 11th pick, interestingly, the fifth-year option has been has been uh, exercised 100% of those guys. The 13th pick is 7 out of 9, and the 12th pick is 6 out of 9. So let's like let's take an average of those of those positions and let's say se- let's say 75%. You know what I mean? Let's just go 75%. So the 12th pick has a 75% chance of hitting. In, in other words, you're going to actually give take his fifth year option. And the that 10th pick through the 32nd pick, they have the same rules. Top 10 has a different rule set. So you're it's not apple oranges here. So you you have a 75% of chance of that hitting. The 32nd pick that is the worst of the group. There's only been eight of them because there was the one year the Patriots cheated. And so Emmanuel Ogbet, 32, was a second-round pick. He didn't get a fifth-year option, a bad bounce for the guy. Um, but you look at this. The 28th pick, one out of nine, have exercised their fifth-year option. The the 29th pick, two out of nine. The 30th pick, five out of nine. The 31st pick, three out of nine. And the 32nd pick, four out of eight. Okay, so let's say... You know, let, let's assume that we have like a, um, you know, let, let's let's say a 33% chance of those hitting, okay? Essentially, you know, like you're not really necessarily going to, you know, 
like again, those are reduced there. So the the fact that those guys are hitting is not going to be particularly high. Um, you know, let's say, you know, so you take thirty three percent. I mean, again, you're taking one of those two at least. So you do have a decent shot of at least one hitting. But again, you do that with the ceiling necessarily not quite as high uh, as he would have been at twelve. Does well, that make sense? Like, so no, you, does, you yeah. have a higher rate of the guy actually being good. I'm doing this sort of math on the fly here. And, and yet, and then so with 32, let's assume 32 and 34 are sort of the same hit rate, even though 34 you wouldn't have the, the fifth-year option. Um, you know, essentially you'd have the, the chances that they both bust are, are about 44%. So you have a 55% chance of at least one hitting if you assume a 33% chance of either one hitting it, you know, individually. Now, so you're for a 75% chance of one, of one guy hitting versus a 55% chance of at least one hitting. Plus you have the high end loss there. Now, again, we know that they got pick 66. They also gave up pick 46. So again, I can see where the people who would be detracting the straight are coming from. And I can, and I, and I also, when I think about safeties, when you look at, and I tweeted this out too, uh, as far as positions are concerned, when you look at the history of safeties taken in round one, um, you know, their hit rate, if I look at it here, is about 65%. Um, You know, that's, I think, fifth most. Average draft position there, though, is 20, not 32 Now the the second the second round though, uh, this is where it gets really dicey. So they trade back with the Packers, and I think that this one is much easier to say good job, because the Packers go up, they reach on a wide receiver, which uh, was being discussed today on the interwebs. But if you're reaching far past the consensus, it's probably not a good idea for you historically, and that's what Green Bay was doing with Christian Watson, and then you move back into the fifties where there are still very good prospects at positions that you need, but the Vikings then decide to go get your guy and then trade back up to get Andrew Booth. And then my head is spinning. Like what trading back was really good. There's a lot of good players back there. And then now wait, you're giving up something else to go back up. And, and and that's where they lost me on the, like, let's drop back to accumulate good players because we need to rebuild major parts of this roster. But then it was like, oh no, we've got a corner that we particularly really love. So we've got to go get him. But then just to make it all the more complex, Andrew Booth Jr. was projected to go much higher, so he slipped, which can be a good thing that you try to get that player who ends up being a steal. And then, I mean, you're just you're just a meme at that point, like with all the math numbers floating in front of your eyes, and you can't figure out whether this was a good idea or not. And what I come away with is the first two picks, which are vastly more important than any other draft pick that they made, and those are the guys that have the best chance to uh, make an impact. Those guys rebuilding a secondary together, if they both hit, could be very, very valuable. But if one of them doesn't, then I think you end up taking an out. That's how that's how I'm taking it away. But how do you evaluate it? Yeah. So we have with the Packers uh, the the draft. You know, is basically two ten. Like as you go further on in the draft, these the oper- the the wins become smaller. So into the second round, they win. 
that I would all, I grew, everybody believed they won the trade with Green Bay. They get about two tenths of a win in the Green Bay trade from what it looks like. And again, I'm punching these numbers in uh, on the fly. And then they lose about uh, 11, uh, yeah, 11 one hundredths of a win. So in total, those three trades netted them about a quarter of a win over the course uh, of, of four years. Um, the Andrew Booth thing's interesting, right? Like this is exactly where you look at like the Cleveland Browns, you know, in sort of this gross way, looking at their quarterback as a distressed asset. Um, you know, Andrew Booth, as he said, was never healthy in college. Um, they, he comes to a cornerback room where they have a history of taking first round, second round guys who are never healthy. Uh, Mike Hughes, an example therein. Um, you know, it's, it's a risky one. Uh, but like, as you said, I think they, they rightfully identified the secondary as a huge issue. They rightfully identified depth in the secondary. And when we look at Asamoah as well, they identified basically coverage uh, depth as an, as an issue for them. You know, the opportunity cost was, the, was a chance to take a player like Jameson Williams. The opportunity cost was uh, a chance to take a quarterback. The opportunity cost, and again, the quarterbacks in hindsight are a lot less valuable than we thought they were, but it's still a thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I like the tradebacks. Um, all the risks that we talked about associated with that understood. I like going secondary, even though, again, in a vacuum, I like going secondary. I don't like going secondary if you have a good safety in Cam Bynum and have an old safety who's going to be playing into a year 35 on big deals for you. But in a vacuum, I like the picks from a team-building standpoint, at least the first two. Yeah, and then the rest of it, though. Uh, now, day three, like, I don't want to just blow over day three, but, it, like, give me until halfway through training camp to tell you whether there's anything happening with day three picks or not. So we'll talk about them, and we'll try to pick which one might be good or whatever else, but it's really hard to focus on for a draft grade, so to speak, uh, when you talk about, hey, is the seventh-round tight end good? Like, I don't know. I mean, probably not, but maybe. Uh, but the other two picks, I think, are extreme head scratchers. Brian Osamoa seems like a nice player, uh, but it, he's undersized. They've gone back to this well a bunch of times, but not just undersized, but it's in like legitimately tiny for the position. Mm -hmm. And then you, you talk about the guard at Ingram. And this one, to me, kind of implodes the whole thing. Like if you were trying to get real jazzed, which a lot of people still are about the draft. And like you said, like there's a, a really good justification for rebuild the secondary really good. And I, you know, through those two picks, you could go, I see it. I get what you're doing here. And if they had picked another corner, I would have been like, Oh, okay. All right. Secondary for L Y F E. If they had gone, if they had done that in the, uh, in the second round, but then they take a guard. And a guard who is supposed to be nowhere close to where he was taken and who does not have rave reviews. NFL.com has him as a fifth round pick. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the one where you just scratch your head. I, I think not even even if we took the background stuff out of it, which, of course, you can't when you make a pick like this. But even just based on the skill set and the reviews of this player. Uh, there, no one had this as somebody that you needed to take. And then look at the guys that they passed on to take him like Drake Jackson. What is Sky Moore still there at that point? Like you have, I don't right. have the list in front of me, but like there's, there's, there's wide receivers and there's DNs and maybe you can explain it through the lens of surplus value because I've been trying to use Timo Riske's study 
as a as a light pole here or whatever you call it um, to help me out on positional value. But if you take a guard and he turns out to be just okay, there's almost no surplus value there. It's like you could have got that guy anywhere and they just kind of did with two dudes in free agency. Whereas if you take a receiver and he's even okay, it's huge surplus value. If you take an edge rusher and he's a five to seven sack guy a year, huge surplus value, even if he never becomes a star. This is the one I just feel like someone called the shot here. This is the guy I want. We got to take him. stood on the table. And uh, we did hear the word stood on the table once in draft weekend, which I, you know, sort of shot an eyebrow up at that. But uh, I don't know. I mean, the second and third round picks to me are just very head scratching. They're not the ones that will define the draft, but I, I, I just, I can't find a way to really justify what they did there. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that you know, as Timo said, like about the two first guys, you know, positive surplus value. The it depends upon where you look. I think us at PFF, we use sort of like the regression and the war stuff. The Vikings ended up a little bit ahead. If you look at Benjamin Robinson's draft capital over expected, the Vikings were negative. Um, and, and you know, you have to factor into that the trades. Like if you trade up and take a guy, or sorry, trade back and take a guy you get, I think, a boost because you're getting capital back. So the player you take, and so I think that's the discrepancy between what we're doing and what Benjamin Robinson's doing. Um, That being said, this is tricky for me because everybody in Vikings Twitter and every apologist for the team is telling me that the whole thing that was wrong with the Vikings the last two years and beyond that was – a, the general manager, and B, the coaching. And, and the problem is the general manager is only as good that the, as the scouts and the analytics people that work for him, and those are the people who, with the exception of Ryan Grigson, are working for Kwasi Adafo Mensa right now, right? And so that th- these rankings are coming from them. So that's the same. The other one is these are positions, linebacker and, and guard, that the Vikings have spent – significant capital on in the past you know Oli Udo um, Wyatt Davis uh, uh, you know, Sage Sherratt um, Troy Troy Dye are all guys that the previous regime drafted but the last coaching staff got fired for apparently not being able to reach now if you are going to go out of your way to to talk up Ke- you know Kevin O'Connell Kevin O'Connell Sorry about that. That's Kevin crazy O'Connell. right there calling. It's just like, I know. stop, stop go criticizing my guard. Yeah. If you're going to go out of your way to praise uh, Kevin O'Connell, Ed Donatel at the expense of Mike Zimmer and all the offensive, like all the offensive you know, line coaches and all that kind of stuff you've had. This is not congruent with that. This is basically saying the, the old coaching staff couldn't coach these guys up and we don't think we can either. And that takes away from some of the value because basically you're starting over with your own men, which means that you're you're further behind than you thought you were as a team. So, sure, if Brian Osamo is a great linebacker, that's fine. But you also it be, it comes at the opportunity cost of being able to take what Mike Zimmer couldn't do, and that's coach up Troy Dye, coach up Shade uh, uh, Shade Schrott. That Chaz comes at the Chaz. He did Chaz Surratt. Sage is his brother. Played wide receiver say, for the same well, same well, North I, Carolina. Well, that's team. right. That's right. I thought you were trying to just shout out our friend Sage Rosenfels. Oh, true. 
Um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 the fact that the guard that they took out of LSU at Ingram is, seems to be also a character concern and a huge one is, is all is bad, but it also just shows that like, you know, you have draft capital from previous years that you're basically lighting on fire at this yeah. point. And so yeah. the, when I, when I saw those picks, I, it, it brought me, it made me concerned after the first, you know, ra- first two rounds of the draft, your first round and a half, let's say he had my interest after that. He had my attention, I think for the wrong reasons. Um, also with uh, Ed Ingram, you know, he's a guy who's played left guard for the last three years. You, you have a left guard set probably for the foreseeable future. So we're talking about moving somebody to right guard. Uh, I, I got a note from somebody that in 2017, he had played right guard. I mean, that is a, a lifetime ago. Uh, I mean, so, that's before he, he got suspended a year. Right, for... right, right. So this is not like a positional flexibility. Oh, he's played all over the line. No, he's been a left guard. And so you're asking him to compete at right guard. But the chances that he wins that job are very low because Ezra Cleveland was a much better prospect than him. Uh, Ezra Cleveland was taken where expected or even a little bit behind as opposed to a big reach. And it took him half a year to even get on the field against even worse competition in, in a, in a battle for that position. So there's not even a today element of either one of those guys like, Oh, they can help right away, but you're right. I mean, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're not even giving yourself a chance to coach up the guys who might be prospects still on the roster and not taking positions that if they hit, how much do they matter? If Ed Ingram is good, what does it matter? Like, I mean, it matters some, but it doesn't matter as much as it would if you took Sky Moore or Drake Jackson and they hit. And I think that's, you know, it's a, it's another complicated formula, which is what makes this so interesting. But that's where it, it misses me in a lot of ways. Um, now, uh, just on the big picture element of this, um, I, I wrote an, an article about like it didn't really fit competitive and it didn't really fit rebuild. And it didn't make them a lot better right away. And I'm not sure how much better it made them in the future, aside from if Andrew Booth hits. That's where I think it's really resting is if that guy's really good, which I think he has the potential to be, then this whole draft looks a lot better for you. Um, But overall, now we have the whole picture of the Vikings offseason and everybody else's. Uh, Where are they? Where are they in the NFC? Especially since, you know, the uh, Eagles just added you know, another really good player to their roster. So lots of teams drafted. They got players. Some will impact them right away. Some won't. Um, did it change anything about where the Vikings previously stood? Did Vegas move? It did, but I'll, I'll say this. like It's kind of embarrassing to see like, oh, their odds moved down from 40 to 1 to 45 to 1. Folks, that's, like a, that's less than a percent with a chance of winning the Super Bowl. It's less than half of a percent win the Super Bowl. Um, I, I think it's instructive to say the only two teams whose odds moved uh, from the first round are the Eagles, who went from 45 to 1 to 35 to 1. That's still only six-tenths of a percent better. And the Vikings moved from 40 to 1 to 45 to 1, which is like two-tenths of a percent worse. So it's not much. And that, again, goes to show you, unless a team unexpectedly takes a quarterback, these odds don't move for much of anything. Unless a team unexpectedly trades Tyree kill. These odds don't move for much of anything. We saw DeAndre Hopkins is going to be suspended for six games uh, for PEDs. That'll move the line a little bit, um, stuff like that. But for the most part, these, I mean, Lewis scene is not like the season when the scenes and win total for the Vikings 
is not moving uh, much at all. It's nine wins at some books. It's eight and a half at books that don't want my money. Um, so that that's that's kind of where uh, you know they're they're still you know plus two seventy five, basically three to one to win the NFC North. Um, they're still you know well behind the Packers, and you know to me uh, that's probably where they should be. Um, can they win this division? Absolutely. Um, can they? Uh, make the playoffs? Yeah, of course. I, I think so. Um, are they basically lying to be the same team as they were last year? Yes. I think that the big question is we can we can wrap on this, and I'd like you to end it by saying, and scene. Get it? Uh, is okay, There's going to be it, some good ones out of this from you, I feel like. I, this is oh, great no. potential. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you you don't draft for this year almost ever anyway. It's usually for the following season and beyond. And that is the bigger question that is much harder to answer is how much they got better for 2023 and 2024 when a lot of these other players will be moving out and they'll need these younger guys to move in. How much better did they get in the long term? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, you know, Cena is going to, or Cena is going to be a player who, is, you know, in theory, they want him to be a cornerstone of this defense. I don't know how important safety is to an Ed Donatel defense, though. I mean, it's clear, like, I sort of think about where they're constructed, and, you know, you have Eric Kendricks, who I don't think is long for this team. He's been a fa- fantastic Viking, but he's he, he regressed significantly last year. He's never been a very physical linebacker, and now that his coverage skills are not quite as good, it's not, like, it's not a long time for him. Jordan Hicks is a two-year deal. You have Brian Asamoa in there as well. You know, you have Cam Bynum. Maybe they'll play three safety looks. They were really never wanted to. There was the time they were flirting with J. Ron Curse as like sort of their nickel slot guy. But for the most part, they never wanted to play three safeties under Mike Zimmer. And that kept them from developing guys like J. Ron Curse. Uh, that kept them from developing guys. Uh, you know, even Cam Bynum barely played if he wasn't starting games last year. So that that has that's been something that maybe we're not used to. But that's playing three safeties is going to come at the expense of one of their veteran linebackers, which is going to come at one at the expense of one of their younger linebackers too. And so that that's certainly an issue there. They again, and you know, I don't know is Andre is the ghost of Andre Patterson walking around that building? They did not a, a, a address uh, defensive end. Um, at all. And, and to me, I think that that's something that can be, uh, you know, the defensive end, I mean, by outside linebacker rush guy. So like it, for the future, like, I mean, they're, they're a couple bad breaks away from like neither having Zadarius Smith or Danell Hunter being long-term deals for them. So that one was tr- interesting for me. Defensive line, they have veterans there, but again, um, you know, there's not, they, they didn't do a ton um, there as well, the Odomoto guy, he, you know, again, that that's again, that that's a projected draft pick. That's not supposed to do anything. Um, wide receiver. Like I play a lot of college DFS. I love Jalen Naylor. He had some good seasons, but he's clearly a limited player. And you, you forewent the opportunity to take a high end player there in Jamison Williams or Chris, or they Chris Olave was taken in front of him. Jamison Williams, Jahan Dotson or Traylon Burks were all chance, you know, opportunities for them uh, to make plays there. The wide receiver core this year is going to be what it was last year. Um, so I guess 
you know, on the offensive side of the ball, they're really leaning into coaching, especially at the skill position players. On the defensive side of the ball, they're looking to build depth. Um, how does that help them long term? I don't know. I Again, I think it's all tied to what they decide to do at quarterback. And, you know, they've made their decision to, to you know push the can down the road on quarterback. And I don't know how much this draft changes what we think of the quarterback. It's uh, a Sazi Otamawu is how you uh, are, at least according to him and his page, mm-hmm. if we were wondering, because I think I said it wrong on the show the other day. Anyway, uh, Eric Eager, PFF Forecast Podcast. We will, of course, do this on a semi-regular basis. Great job with all of Pro Football Focus's coverage. It has become uh, more and more that I can, I guess, reach to different buckets of information to form an opinion on things. And that comes centrally from pro football focus, the data team that you have and the things that you guys are able to put out there in terms of studying the draft. So great stuff with that. And people should listen to the forecast with you and George Shahuri, and we will definitely do this again. This is fun, Matt. It's always good to sort of think back on a draft that I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be all that impactful, but there were, it certainly made us think about things.